Thank you, choir. Now, they're not a choir. At least they don't call themselves a choir. But they're getting big enough to be a choir. I tell you, we're grateful for the music here. And you have spoken to our hearts this morning. Every Bible turn to Ephesians chapter 5. How many of you here this morning have read one of Max Licato's books? Let me see your hands. All right. Uh, let me see your hands again. All right, okay. Uh, which one did you like the best? Huh? Tell me again. In the eye of the storm. What did you like the best? Hammer on the anvil. All right. Anybody else? And the angels were silent. All right. A what? Applause from heaven. Ah, oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I just thought that he might uh, like to hear that. Brother Max is with us today. Brother Max, stand up and take a bow. Let us give you a, a hand, would you? Max Licato with us today. How many of you know that he's a Baptist? Huh? You knew he was a Baptist? He, he's one of the uh, secret Baptists that we have slipped over here. And, of course, he's pastoring a church that uh, uh, has Church of Christ on it, but he's about uh, one of them, kind of like I am one of you. He's an unusual man, and uh, he had a Sunday off. He did our commencement service uh, Friday night, and my, what a marvelous message he brought. And he said, I'm going to come hear you preach Sunday. And I said, you can't do that. You've got to be preaching. He said, no, I'm supposed to have been in California with an Amway meeting, and they had some kind of mess up out there and had to reschedule something, and they called me and told me it was off until another time. And uh, as they rescheduled, he said, I've already got somebody lined up to come to my church. And you wouldn't have known it if I hadn't told you because... He looks almost normal. <laughs> it's wonderful when they tell preachers, you know, you look normal. People see me and they look at me and they say, are you a preacher? And I said, no, I've just been sick, <laughs> you know. But uh, when you see a fellow that looks normal uh, in church and, a, and he's a preacher, that's got to be a great, great characteristic. And it's such a delight to have him here. How complimented I am that he would come hear me preach for he is a, a preacher par excellence himself and not to speak of the kind of writer that he is. I read his books, and I was going to preach on relationships this morning, but I've changed my mind. That was the sermon he preached Friday night, so I decided not to preach it since he's here. No, not really. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to call your attention to verses 22 through 23, 22 through 32, pardon me, and... And then we're going to skip over to chapter, to verses 1 through 7, but I want to set the stage by reading to you this passage of Scripture and ask you a question. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What is the church? Now, that sounds like a rather unusual question, having read it from this passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture usually introduces a sermon on the home or the role of a husband or a wife. You know, husbands love, wives submit, and, and that you've heard. But you know, the truth of the matter is, when we read this passage of Scripture, it's strange for us to realize that unless we understand what the church is, we cannot adequately interpret the role of the husband and to the wife, the wife to the husband in the relationship that Paul is using it. For you see, he's saying that husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives submit unto the husband, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so the truth of the matter is, Unless we properly understand the church, we're not going to properly relate what Paul is saying here in this passage. I want us today to talk to you about the church. What is the church? We've heard a great deal about the church. We, we read a great deal about church growth. There are church growth seminars. There are church growth manuals. There are, is what we speak of as marketing researchers for the church today. We even have purpose statements for the church. But I'm not sure that we're ready for a purpose statement until we have an essence statement. What is the church? Who is the church? In the Criswell Bible footnote, there is this uh, explanation. The church is a group of people who have been called out of sin and unbelief in Christ who have given witness to that life through believer's baptism and who have banded themselves together voluntarily. That sums it all up. The word ekklesia, ek meaning out of, and the other portion of that word referring to being called. God has called the church out of the world. We've been called out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light. But so oftentimes when we hear the word church, we think of a building or we think of an organization with a CEO. And the truth of the matter is the church is an organism and the head is Christ. And we must come to realize today, ladies and gentlemen, that what we are is extremely important. Knowing what we are and who we are is extremely important as to carrying out the mission that God created us for. So I want you to turn in your Bible to verses 1 through 7 of the same chapter in chapter 5 
And I want you to listen to these words. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ is also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Be followers. The word follower there is the word imitator. Imitator. It comes from a Greek word that we get our word mimic from. And I think that it's rather difficult to think in terms of any of us being able to mimic God. We certainly could not create a universe and keep it intact. We certainly could not purchase redemption for another mankind uh, as he did. But mimic in the sense of as we understand his character and as we see his actions as pictured in the life of the Lord Jesus, you and I are to be imitators of Christ. And so I want to talk to you this morning about what is the church, part one, for when I began working on this manuscript, after I got down through point one, I realized I'd already gone about six pages and hadn't gotten to point two yet, and I knew that there wasn't going to be any way that I could cover it all, so this is part one. And the thought today is, what is the church supposed to be? What is the church, part one, supposed to be? And verse one tells us we are to be imitators of the Lord Jesus, present, middle, imperative in the Greek text, meaning that we are to do it ourselves. We are to accept the command, and we are to be doing over, continually doing, carrying out, always imitating, mimicking what the Lord would have us to be. I was eating lunch the other day with one of our men, and we were in this uh, Mexican restaurant that had a little patio out there, and there were obviously a couple uh, who were here from Mexico, and they had a little two-and-a-half-year-old girl, and she had already eaten all the lunch that she wanted, and she was giving them a fit by trying to do this and do that. And the mother obviously had been, been uh, shopping, and her feet were tired, and she had kicked her shoes off under the table. And this little girl uh, had gone over and reached underneath and pulled those shoes out, and behind her mother, she had gotten her feet into her mother's shoes, and then all of a sudden, with her little purse draped over her arm, she starts walking rather uh, kind of prissy, you know, around in those mother's shoes like that. And I thought to myself, her whole body language changed the minute that she got her feet into her mother's shoes. And I rather supposed that she was mimicking what she had seen in her mother. All of us, notice that passage. Paul says that we are to be imitators or followers of Christ as children. He realizes that children are not taught as much as behavior is caught. Either the father and the son or the mother and the daughter, there is something caught, and we find ourselves mimicking those before us. And he says, as children of God, we're to be imitators, mimic as we see what Jesus is, what God is in Jesus. We're to be like that. We're the called out ones, called out of darkness, to walk in his marvelous life. Called out of sin, redeemed, joined to him as one, and we have identified ourselves through believer's baptism, and we have willfully bonded our hearts together. It is extremely important that we know what the church is to be. Then that other little word there for be, literally in the uh, New Testament language, means become. We are to become imitators, being imitators, becoming imitators of him. And then from verse 1 through verse 7, he tells us 
three rather significant things that we're to become. First of all, we're to be virtuously pure. Verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. There are three words there that tell us what we are to be as far as virtuously pure. First of all, he's suggesting that there is a physical purity in that word fornication. He says literally here that but fornication, we're to abstain from that. The word is a Greek word porne. We get our word pornography from it. It means literally here that it is sexual immorality is not so much as even to be named in the church. He says it is to be put away. That is to be a lifestyle that is foreign to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when I look around in the world today, I find sometimes it's rather difficult to distinguish the problems in the church from the problems in the world. Paul says, what is the church to be as a called out body of believers? He says that we are literally here to be virtuously pure. And the very first thing is in the physical realm in this thing of sexual morality. I think one of the saddest things that I heard about this past week as I was visiting with a friend of mine from Dallas, he shared with me about a pastor who had been, he and his wife had been married 52 years and recently divorced as he ran off with a 38-year-old secretary. My friend, somebody's circuits must blow out at that time of life to give up all of their illustrative past, their children, their grandchildren, their profession, and everything that had substance seems to have been given away in one act of immorality. It saddens my heart that there are those things in the realm of the church today. Paul says the church is to be virtuously pure in the physical realm. I read the other day someone said this, that it's not enough to be a good gardener and to love roses, but you also have to hate weeds. Oh, that God would let us as the church not only love God with all of our heart, but let us hate the sin that devours us from within and be on alert to those things that he warns us against and seek to be pure. We cannot do it in our own strength but we have the resurrected Christ living within us that can provide us with that kind of power. But then he says there needs to be a mental purity. Do you notice the word there, uncleanliness? He spoke of that in the 19th verse of the fourth chapter when he said, who being past feeling have given themselves over to licentiousness to, walk all, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. Have you noticed that greediness, the lust of the flesh, and the lust for things sort of go together. When I call your attention to that little word there where he says that they had given themselves over, they were past feeling, he is saying there's a mental attitude. There is a mental attitude that no longer regards purity or sanctity. They're just given over to it, and it literally carries with it the idea that they are numbed to it. They are no longer, they're past feeling it. They've been desensitized. Some months ago, I was watching television, and I was watching this story about a man, and it was a true story, a California man who was on death row. He had, was there having 
been holding the record for having murdered the most people of any individual that is still waiting in death row. And they were interviewing him and talking to him about the crimes that he had committed and, and they would tell you about these crimes and they reenacted them where it happened. And when it said to him, how, how do you feel when you just put a gun to the head of this individual? Or how did you feel when this man's body was cut up and put in a freezer? Or how did you feel when you blew this person up in his car? And with cold steel eyes staring off into space and without one whip of emotion on his face, he said, it was just a job. I never felt anything. That's what Paul is saying here, that we need not be past feeling. We don't want to get past feeling in our thinking to where there's no thought, there's no emotion. We just go on doing what we're doing in this world of ours because it's just an existence. He's talking about a purity, my dear friend, a, to be virtuously pure. That's what God wants the church to be physically as well as mentally. And then in verse 5, he speaks of covetousness as idolatry. And he is speaking here of spiritual purity. You see, he lumps all of this together. He lumps the person who is a fornicator and the person with uncleanliness of thoughts over here that's past feeling in the same category with one who is covetous because he says this person is guilty of idolatry. In other words, don't worship your possessions. And we might be very quick to judge that person of an immoral sin over here in the physical realm or the person whose mind is unclean, and yet we could very easily be lumped in the same judgment, he says, if we are being possessed by our possessions so that it stands between us and God. There's a great danger in allowing those things to get a hold of us. Have you ever noticed that overindulgence of greed and desire has a way of controlling us until we almost worship it? It becomes that which claims our attention. You say, what is that which you worship? It's that which you give priority to in your life. There is in South Africa a spider that has the unique ability to create a bubble around it. And in that bubble, he can sink to the bottom of the river or to the bottom of the ocean and live underwater in a strange atmosphere for hours. He breathes the air within the bubble until he is ready to come to the top. It's a good illustration of what a Christian is and ought to be. We are in a foreign environment in this world as the church, the ecclesia, called out ones out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of sin into his righteousness, we are in a world that is a corrupt world. We are in a world that is an ungodly world. We are in a world that doesn't think like us, that doesn't act like us, that doesn't worship the same God we worship, and yet we are to exist in that world. We are to be like that little spider in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we can live in this world, but not be of this world. The little animal, the ermine, that is so precious and so uh, expensive and 
chased and trapped and its fur is taken and coats are made out of it is a very meticulously clean animal. And because of its nature, hunters take advantage of it. The way they catch them is they go to the hole or to the nest and they put dirt and grease and things that would cause it to get dirty. And when the dogs begin to chase the little animal and chase it back to its burrow, when it gets there and it sees that the hole is dirty and there's dirt and grease around it, it refuses to go in because it doesn't want to get dirty. And so it'll turn and take on the wolves or the dog pack that's coming even unto death. And I think that's a great example of what God would have the church to be. We ought to be so concerned about our nature and who we are and what we are that rather than to immerse ourselves into the presence of filth, we would turn and fight and take on the world if needs be because of our very nature and what we are. Paul says in that third verse, but fornication and all uncleanliness and covetousness not... Don't let it even be once named among the saints. But then we're to be vocally proper. Look at verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. He is saying here there's a proper manner in which we're to speak. We're to be vocally proper. And the first thing he says to us is avoid uncleanliness. He uses that word filthiness. It means obscene or shameful. And it comes from a compound word, which we get our word from the first portion of it, for moron. It means literally here words without meaning or simple words. And if somebody would call you a moron or a simpleton, you wouldn't think it was a rather, you wouldn't think it to be complimentary at all. And yet what he says here is we are not to be guilty of speaking like morons is the idea. Don't just use words that are obscene and that are vulgar, but as the church of God, we ought to have a vocabulary that is different. It ought to be a vocabulary of praise. Don't speak shameful things. Then he goes not only uh, avoiding the unclean, he says avoid the unnecessary. And he uses the word foolishness. You see what he has to say in that verse? He says, nor foolish talking. Foolishness means silliness. There are those that describe this word as one who would just speak in order to get a laughter. He would say something that means nothing if he can just somehow engender laughter. It means empty, foolish, no substance to it. The church is not to be caught up in a world of just coarse jesting and foolishness. So oftentimes the comedians today and the comedians entertain folks and cause them to laughter, cause them to, to enjoy laughing. And they do it by simply appealing to the coarse, to the degenerate nature of their audience. We're to avoid the uneasy. Look at the next phrase, coarse jesting. A word study of coarse jesting is, a, is an interesting study in personality. I don't know what your spiritual gift is, but many, many years ago, before I was interested in spiritual gifts, I think I had a carnal gift. It was coarse jesting. And what he's saying that is that this person has the dexterity of conversation to take what you have said 
and repeat it and give it a different meaning so that you want to almost deny what you said. Have you ever been around anybody and you've said something and then all of a sudden they took what you said and after they got through interpreting it to everybody else, you were trying to apologize because they, made, they took it and made a joke on somebody else or they took it and gave it a meaning that had a coarse direction to it and that wasn't what you meant at all. I want you to know the church, he says, ought to be made up of people who have a kind of vocal purity, if you please, and properness about it, that you don't ever take somebody else's phrase, twist it around, and make a fool out of them, or deceive others by what has been said, or make a joke at somebody else's expense. Paul is being rather specific about the what the church the called out ones is to be. And he is saying that there are those that need to be virtuously pure and vocally proper. I'm oftentimes appalled at the readiness to receive gossip on the part of the believers. Have you heard what so-and-so said? And we began to repeat it. Years ago, I was reading through the book of James and one of my readings by a Presbyterian preacher he said there's a threefold test that all of us as believers ought to always give to everything we say. First of all, number one, is it true? Second of all, is it kind? Third of all, is it necessary? And have you ever heard somebody repeat something and say, oh, but it's the truth. Well, it may be the truth, but the second thing, is it kind? And yes, well, it was kind, Well, was it necessary? Sort of reminds me of my boys when they ask their mother a question and 15 minutes later after they have gotten a historical documented research paper on one question, Don would turn and say, Mother, I really didn't want to know that much about it. Maybe you're that way at times. Somebody asks you something and it's absolutely unnecessary, but you bore them to death with the details, the sordid details that they would be better off if they never had. It's in important for us to be the church and to recognize what the church is. Virtually pure, vocally proper. But there's another verse, and that's verse 7. Therefore, he says, do not be partakers with them. Verse 6 also, let no one deceive you with empty words. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Be vigorously perceptive. Paul is warning the church. He said, there are those that would deceive you with empty words. I referred some time ago to George Barner, who has written several books on church growth. He is that person who is evaluating the marketing prospects of the church, and there are wonderful, many good things that come to us through him. But I think as the church, we need to put ourselves in a position, first of all, of being vigorously aware of our perspective. This business of going out and making your church a church that is uh, seeker-conscious, you know, or seeker-friendly, so that people can come to church, that's wonderful. But my dear friend, there's another thing we need to consider, and that is this. If we make our theology and our programs so convenient that we compromise the truth, we have lost the battle. You see what I'm saying is we need to be 
rather vigorously perceptive, first of all, philosophically. What is our philosophy about the gospel? I want to tell you that we never need to water down the sermons where we have to apologize for using the word sin or the word hell or the word saved in order to make folks on the outside get comfortable on the inside. We need to do all that we can to make it convenient for them, but when our convenience becomes a compromise with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've gone too far. And so Paul is warning them, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Be careful not to let your accommodations become a compromise. Paul is really taking a swat at the Ananomians and to the Gnostics of the day who would say about sin, well, it's all right to do this. It's all right to be sexually promiscuous. It's all right to be a part of the world over here. It's all right to do these things and give you empty words and philosophies that say it's all right to be like this. I want you to know we are being inundated from the top of the government to the lowest grassroots of society today on things that are being told to us, it's all right. This is the 90s when the truth of the matter is it violates God and it violates his word and it is contrary to what God called you and me to be as the church. And he goes on in this passage and we'll deal with other, other portions of it later as he gets down to music and other things there. But he says, empty words, Holler, hollow, sophisteries, and apologies for sin, says Trench, as he talks about the church. Then he says they're sons of disobedience, and literally that word is a Semitic expression of saying this is a person whose total personality has been given over to just disobedience. The church is to be obedient unto God. And then he says we need to be perceptive not only to philosophy, but to practice don't have anything to do with them. Therefore, do not participate with them. Now, I want you to notice something. Where it involves an individual, he is talking about that particular sin. He is not saying don't be kind to them. He's not saying don't associate with them. He is saying don't participate in their activity of what they're doing. He's not saying that we're to set ourselves up above everybody, is holier than thou, and not have anything to do with the folks out there. He's just saying, don't get involved in what they're doing with them. One of our men came to me a week or so ago, and he said to me, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I'm getting ready to go into business. It's a wonderful opportunity, but both of the men that I'm going in with, neither one are Christians. What should I do? Well, I want you to know I can't answer uh, your business deals and your questions or play Holy Spirit for you. But I'll tell you what I told him. I'm going to give you two verses of Scripture and you let God use them to speak to you however he will. One is, in 1 Corinthians when he says, be not unequally yoked together, was not just in relationship to marriage, but it's in relationship to the Christian body in the world. And the other one is, over in Colossians where he says, let the peace of God rule your heart or umpire your heart. You go by what God tells you inwardly and you be sure that you're not putting yourself in a position that in that position you have to violate your inner being in order to carry out your partner's desires and practices that may be unprincipled according to Scripture. 
came back to me last Sunday and he walked up to me and he said, Pastor, I made that decision and I had no problem walking into that office that morning and turning down this rather lucrative deal and business venture because God wouldn't let me do it and I know I've done the right thing. I want you to know, my dear friend, it's, it's very difficult sometimes in this business of being perceptive as to practice and perceptive as to philosophy. We as pastors, we as a church, need to be very careful today in the climate, in the world in which we're in, that we don't become desensitized as the body of Christ so as to be effective in a lost, dark, dying, degenerate world. For we have the gospel. We were called out to reveal his light and to share his praises and to give thanks unto him for making us who we are and inviting others to become like him. Do you remember the story in Joshua chapter 9 about the Gibeonites? Let me close with this story. In Joshua 9, 1 through 15, the Gibeonites had heard about the battle of Ai, Jericho, and they wanted to be spared. So they said, if we can go to Joshua and tell him we came from afar, maybe he'll take us in as a strange tribe and not as one of the local groups that he's extinguishing. And so they got on their donkeys after they'd put old crusty bread in their saddle bags and as they put on old sandals and old clothes and when they came to him, they said, oh, we've come from afar. Make a covenant with us and swear to us that we could be joined together in, in a coalition and union together. We will be like you and you be like us. Joshua said, how do we know that you've come from afar? Well, look at our sandals and look at the bread. It was freshly baked when we left and these were new sandals when we left and Oh, we've come from afar. And it says, And he sought not the counsel of the Lord. And they made a covenant with them in the name of the Lord. But three days later they found out that the Gibeonites had not come from afar, but only a few miles up the road. And they had appeared to be on a long journey, but they had just come in just a few days. But now the covenant had been made. And then, you know, the Gibeonites' enemies came against them and Joshua had to fight the battle for the Gibeonites. You see, they were now in union together. They couldn't go against the covenant and the oath that they had sworn in the name of the Lord. And they said, we'll make them hewers of wood and drawers of water, but they'll be doing this. But even though they had relegated them to just a menial task, they were nonetheless a part of them and there was a commitment with them. And so now they had to fight for them. And the lesson is this, listen to me. Whenever we find our ourselves making a costly commitment to the world, three things are going to happen. One, it becomes an object for Satan's attack. It clamors for continual attention and it depletes our resources. That has always happened. Barner's book is entitled A Frog in the Kettle. One of them is. And I think that that is a rather illustrative picture but it's not the truth. The truth of the matter is, while a frog may be boiled slowly to death, when the fire is turned up finally to its hottest point, it would die. That's contrary to the church. The church has never died under fire, gradual or otherwise. It has always thrived. The church has had its worst days and suffered the most when it is enjoying comfort and prosperity 
and ease. So let me say to you, my dear friend, what is the church? The church is God's called out elect. That is to be pure, vocally proper, and it is to be in such a position to evaluate the philosophies and the practices out there that it will be vigorously, vigorously on guard against anything that would come against it in philosophy or practice. Next week I'm going to speak to you on the subject what is the church to do? And we'll examine some of these other verses. Maybe you're not a part of the church of God. Maybe you've never given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and spiritually been baptized into His body. But Christ would want you to be today as He called you. If you're willing to make that kind of commitment, He's willing to reach out, take hold of you, claim you as a part of that bride and that body and that organism and do in you whatever is necessary to do to give you the strength and the power to be His and to live that virtuously pure life as he's called you to it. Stand with me as we pray together. <clears throat> Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father, I pray today that you would in every way possible make us virtually pure vocally proper and vigorously perceptive that as the body of believers here in this place we might shine as the light in a dark place that would draw men and women to Jesus for there's none like unto him we are his he is the head of this church he is our Savior to whom we must submit. He is the one who has loved us and commanded us to love one another. May we see what the church is and what Christ intended for it to be in order that we might carry out what he would have us to be. We'll honor you and praise you. If there's one person here today that's never made Jesus their Savior, may they do so in this hour. In Jesus' dear name we pray, amen.